we're entering back into our series going through the Gospel of John. I was thinking we need to start to get through this book faster because it'll take, you know, several months if we don't. And uh, chapter 9, I thought I could preach through. And then now it looks like it's probably three sermons in one chapter. So forgive me, but uh, it's a great chapter. So one of the, my favorite stories in, in all of the Bible is in this chapter. And we're about to approach it this morning. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Let's stand for the reading of the word this morning. Make sure everybody's awake and alive. Honor God's word. The word of God says this, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Lord, I pray this morning your living word would pierce through our soul and our spirit that it would bring revelation of who you are your goodness, your graciousness, your mercy, that it would challenge our hearts, that it would admonish us as humans and challenge us to become more like you. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness in these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. There's a lot to this chapter. There's a lot to this miracle and, and to why it even takes place. And we're not going beyond these five verses today because I don't want us to miss what I believe as you read through this. And I don't know how you read through scripture, but I don't like to just read through the Bible like it's just words on a page. I want to actually be in the story like I'm watching a movie. I want to be sucked into the emotion. I want to see what's going on, not just in front of me, but around me in the story. I'm always thinking about what the other people are thinking in the story as they, you know, are, are experiencing Jesus in their lives and what's going on. And I don't want us to miss that in the larger context of the chapter. Because this isn't just the story about a man who was blind, but now he sees, which is probably one of the most famous parts of this chapter. But... This is a man who didn't just lose his sight one day, as if that wouldn't be bad enough. But this is the type of story, if you will pause as you read it, that challenges most people. You might not catch that because you're just reading through the story. But this right here is the thing that challenges most people in the world. This story is what causes people to not believe in God. This type of story is what challenges Christians in their faith to question and to doubt and to wonder, why is God even there? Is he real? Like, why would this even happen? This doesn't make sense. There's so much more to this story, but we don't, if we're not careful, we'll see it as him as a man that was blind rather than what really took place. Because this is the story about two parents who were in love and conceived a child. And at some point after his birth, they came to understand that their baby was born blind. 
Why was the baby born blind? A baby was born without sight. And we believe in God. Anytime a baby is born and it's born in some sort of uh, view that we would think is unfair, it's incomprehensible. It's challenging. This is the story that we're reading through this morning. I don't know. I tried to think about this. When would they have realized this? Today we have technology. Back then they didn't. They may have been excited when their baby was born and thought that everything was normal, everything was okay. They had dreams for their child and that their child was going to grow and, and, and follow after his father and whatever trade of work it might be. Or maybe he would excel in his education and become a rabbi and a great teacher and a religious leader of their nation, not knowing what was going to take place. Maybe it was something physically evident from the very beginning. Maybe it was noticeable as he began to eat. Maybe he wouldn't see the spoon coming towards his face. Or maybe as he began to crawl or walk, or maybe it began simply being noticeable when the baby would fail to do things that most babies do as they mimic what their parents do smiling at your child and your child doesn't smile back teaching them to wave goodbye or hello and they don't wave i don't know the details or where it was that it took place but at some point in this story we have to understand this man was born blind it's tragic when it happens today, but how much more 2,000 years ago? You know, like I said, we can't know all the details, but we know that in the days of Jesus, I would think that it would have certainly been much more difficult than we ever could have possibly imagined in today's world. As the child would grow, there were no special schools for the blind to help teach them how to read. Braille had not been invented yet. There was no way to really educate them or eventually train them so that they could still work and provide for themselves in society. No, most blind people, most people with disabilities back then would end up as unclean beggars unclean to their society, to the people that may have loved them the most as a baby because they couldn't see what they touched. Therefore, you wouldn't know if they were clean. Therefore, being unclean, they couldn't go into certain places. They couldn't worship in the temple with, with everybody else. But this was the destiny of a blind man, an unclean beggar, surviving by the mercy of the charitable. That's the story we enter into this morning. And so what is the first lesson that we can learn from the story of the blind man? Believe it or not, it's not even the lesson that the blind man might have needed to learn as if we're the blind man. It's the lesson 
that when we see something happening, we need to see it. Point number one, as followers of Christ, is to see. Everybody say see. If you have eyes to see, God gave them to you for a reason. If you have eyes to see, then see. What I want you to notice is the story does not begin with the question of the disciples or even their conversation or even the disciples, you know, seeing the blind man. It doesn't even start with the disciples who are walking by and, and we see their discussion a verse later. The story begins where it says, Jesus seeing the man. There's a reason that it would point out. They were walking as a group. Why would it mention that Jesus first sees the man as he passes by? You would think that all of those with Jesus must have seen the same sad situation. And so, I don't know about you, but that causes me to have to ask a few questions. If it weren't for Jesus seeing the man, would the disciples have even looked where Jesus was looking? All right. When you're walking with somebody and you're walking in a group and somebody stops and he, they look and they see something, what does everybody else do? They turn with them. But if everybody's talking and just going about their time and enjoying their time together, a lot of times they miss what's going on all around them. In this case, it's because Jesus first saw that caused the rest of them to then see. But even in seeing what was their response, it was conversation. They didn't really see. And so I have to ask, would they have even seen? Would they have started any conversation about it? Or would they have just kept on walking by? Would they have ignored the obvious? Would they have pretended to not see? Preferring blindness to negate the need before their very capable eyes. Now don't don't even just for a second get judgy. Because do not pretend that you haven't walked in those disciples' shoes before. It's called turning a blind eye. And how many of us have been there pretending that you don't see what is sometimes the elephant in the room? For whatever reason, we don't want to get involved. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to enter into the mess. We don't want to take the time. We don't want to expend the extra effort. And then it makes it hard. It makes it hard for us to then judge people like the disciples it should make it hard for us to judge the uppity priest and the Levite that were traveling on the road to Jericho in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 when they crossed by on the other side. All they were doing was turning a blind eye. And how many of us live our lives purposefully turning a blind eye? We have the sight to see, but we choose to be blind because blindness is easier than really seeing as Jesus sees. 
Now, mind you, it can be our natural reflex to see and avoid, to see and avoid. But as Christians, we're not meant to be natural people. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw. He saw an unclean man. He saw a man that was begging, a man that couldn't see. But what Jesus saw was something that was without judgment. He saw with compassion and with purpose. And we are supposed to be followers of Jesus. We have the spirit of Jesus in our hearts. And we should understand this because we ourselves know that we've been seen. That our lives have been touched by a supernatural God and all of our brokenness by a God that paid attention to where we were, by our merciful Savior. And so, likewise, if you want to be one of the no, most unnaturally supernatural kind of human beings on the planet, a Jesus kind, then you've got to learn to be willing to open your eyes and willing to see people, to see them, and then not just see them, but be willing to move toward them. That's good sight. The disciples eventually saw because Jesus saw. But I want to show you what kind of sight they had. Point number two, their ability to see caused them to then become nearsighted. They went from turning the blind eye to having sight, but their sight was nearsighted. They were moved, but they were only moved in thought, not in heart not in action. And so point number two this morning is nearsightedness. Verse two says this. This is the response upon seeing the man by the disciples. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Who sinned? Like who's at fault here? It's perplexing, isn't it? But for all of us, it's a natural question that when something happens that we can't clearly see the reasoning behind it, then we want to know why. And we ask this question all the time. Like, there's an earthquake that just happened. Why did that earthquake just happen? There's hurricanes in Florida. Like, why, why does it seem that hurricanes keep washing Florida clean? There's fires in California, and, and there's these great big fires that take place and grab national attention, and, and why is there, there are things continually burning in California? There's earthquakes in California. Like, for all the conservative Christians, we look at it like God's trying to cleanse that state, Right? But, but really, we're asking the why, or we think we know the answer to the why. It's always about the reasoning behind it. We're looking for some sort of reason. Why was there a big fire in Maui this last year? Like, we're always asking these type of questions. And then, not only do we ask those questions, but sometimes we ask those questions on more personal terms. Like, when somebody in the family gets cancer. Then you have to ask the question, well, why didn't the brother or why didn't the sister or why didn't some other relative, why was it that one out of everybody that got the cancer? 
Why does somebody survive a tragedy when they could be sitting right next to the person that lives in that tragedy? How's there a choice made and what's the reasoning that is behind that? Why does it seem like some people have more problems than most? You all have people in your life that you wonder about that question. Why does it seem like they always seem to have problems? Because if we're honest, sometimes people certainly seem to have it worse than others. And now there's people that are sitting in here this morning that sometimes you feel like that person is you. You're asking the question, why does it seem like I have more problems than most? that I have to suffer in this way. In our verses this morning, this man was born blind. It, it doesn't matter how many other qualities that he has in life. All of them are affected by his blindness. His strength is affected by his blindness. His intellect was affected by his blindness. His romantic life would have been affected by his blindness. His family life is affected by his blindness. His financial status was affected by his blindness. Can you guys see that? Like it affects every aspect of who he is. He could have bought a house, but he was blind. He could have had a better family but he was blind. He could have been considered for some position of nobility, potentially, but he was blind. He could have been more educated, but he was blind. Have you ever sat back and pondered the things that could have been in your life, but? If. And then like the disciples, you ask the question, whose fault is it that I am blind? If I were to take a poll in here this morning, you might be surprised at the list of people that we choose to blame. But most often we blame what we cannot explain. It's the nature of people, and we can't see clearly to try and find fault, to try and look for somebody to blame. The disciples, how did they see this situation? With nearsightedness. So as soon as they saw the blind man who was born that way from birth, they began to blame what appeared to be closest to the situation. All they could see is what was nearest to them. It had to have been the man himself or his parents. And so let's examine this. Number two, one's own sin. The closest person to your problem is you. And there's no doubt that sin has consequences I think we all know that and understand that. We all suffer at times because of our foolish choices. But this in no way means that we suffer all the time because of our sins. So if we aren't suffering from our own sins, then we will 
look outside of ourselves and start to wonder if it's that we're suffering from the sins of somebody else. In the disciples' case, they said, well, the next person closest in this guy's life is his parents. And so it must have been the parents' sins. Now, there was a belief back then that, you know, there, a, a baby could sin in the womb and then have the consequences of sin when they were even born. There's also the belief that the parents could do something that would cause the sin of their lives to be passed on to their child and that that would be passed forth. We know in Deuteronomy chapter 5 in the giving of the Ten Commandments and the very first commandment that it says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the, of the fathers, that's the sin of the fathers, upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. That It's saying that sin can be passed on or the consequences of sin can be passed on. There are clearly times that we can see where a person's suffering is caused by the sin of their parents. I could give you example after example of times where a child is affected by the sin of their parents, whether that's physically affected, mentally affected, emotionally affected, and you know that there's slim chance they're going to turn out any different than their parents, have the same struggles, the same issues. That doesn't mean it happens all the time, but it does happen once in a while, and most people will admit that that takes place in life. But just because it happens once in a while doesn't mean that that's always the reason why somebody has an issue, a struggle, a, a challenge in their life. It's not always somebody else's sin that's caused the challenge in your life. It's not necessarily your sin. It might not be anybody's sin that has caused that. So Jesus drops what I would say is a little visine in the disciples' eyes. To clear up their sight, clear up one big misperception, and he answers them in verse 3, and he says, you know what? You guys all looking for fault? Who's to blame? Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, the disciples couldn't get past being nearsighted. They wanted to blame everybody that was closest that they could see to the situation. And so Jesus is attempting to adjust their sight and make them see something that is far beyond what is close, what is visible, to make them see something that is far beyond what's directly in front of them, far beyond the human aspect, far beyond the natural, but then to look to God. Farsightedness. But in doing that, did Jesus answer the question? And that's where I want to break down three different perspectives of the idea of suffering this morning. Because this creates a whole other dilemma. When you study in different churches and pastors what they believe about this, there's generally three ways to look at if Jesus answered this question or not. Two believe that he directly answered the question, that yes, that was the answer. And then there's a third that believes he didn't answer the question at all. And I've found that most people fall into one of these three categories. The first one, these people, when they hear what, was what Jesus said, they believe that what was being said is if you're looking for who caused the blindness, 
It was for the glory of God that it was God that blinded the man for God's glory. Meaning he purposed from the very beginning that he would be born blind just for this very moment that he would be glorified when Jesus prays over him and he receives sight. The problem I have with that, and I'm just going to give you Corey's opinion. I don't care if you believe one of these three. I'll still give you my opinion because I have the mic. Is that in this, to me, it causes some people to blame God. And then they can't get past the farsightedness. Because all they can then see is that it must be God's fault that this situation took place. Now, I'm going to defend their position just a little bit because I I do think that this causes people to question, people to doubt. It challenges people's faith. If not, causes them to lose faith. They definitely become weakened. Some people, it causes them to view God as being, he's obviously, if that's the case, pompous and self-absorbed, that he would cause somebody to be blind, that he might then just be glorified at a later date in front of people. But others actually find peace in believing that God is sovereign completely, that he is the giver of all things. He's also the taker of all things and yet still find that he is good even when it doesn't look like it. Now, they support their views. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, Moses is talking to the Lord. He's given the Lord all of his excuses why he doesn't want to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And one of those were that, you know, he doesn't speak that well. God's answer to Moses in that chapter is that he says to Moses, Exodus 4, 11, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? And they will explain in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's an end times scripture talking about the fact that Jesus was the lamb of Christ, was actually put upon the cross. It was pre-planned. God determined it before the earth was even formed because he knows all things, which means it was predetermined that Jesus would be persecuted when he did come upon the earth, that he would be verbally assaulted, that he would be physically beaten, that he would suffer an unimaginable death, and that he would die on the cross predetermined. God had it planned. Isaiah 53.10, this is one of the hardest, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. In the original language, to crush him, his one and only son. Like that sounds so challenging, so difficult, if you don't see the goodness of God and the greater plan in what is being said of the purpose of why he would choose to do something. It's the view that sometimes we could take that says right now, we don't understand why God caused this to happen, but I do know it is all part of his plan. And there's people that find rest in that. One of the more popular pastors in the world, his name is Matt Chandler. He's a pastor out of Texas. Uh, In 2010, I think it was, he got cancer, brain cancer. Uh, Young father, married, pastoring a big church 
in Texas, and he found out and had uh, surgery on Thanksgiving of that year, and then they didn't think that he would make it. He's now, thankfully, 2024, still alive, still pastoring and preaching. But in that, uh, he was interviewed, and he began to talk about this battle, and he talked about during his own fight with brain cancer, it was actually this view, because he's Calvinist, and he believes that everything is predetermined in life. But it was this view that brought him personal comfort, knowing that his own suffering was part of the predetermined will of God. He took solace in that. And so this view seems to me to create either a great divide between those that are challenged in their situation or those who find great solace. The second way to look at what Jesus said is that sin blinded the man, but it was for the glory of God. This is where I would say that I tend to usually fall in this view. In this view, it wasn't that God predetermined anything. It wasn't that he ordained for this man to be blind, that it was this man's purpose to be blind all of his life, but that sin is the issue. I mean, sin is the issue, but sin did cause the blindness. However, it wasn't any one person's specific sin. Like, listen, when it came to did the man sin or his parents sin, like when Jesus says, no, it doesn't mean they lived a sinless life. It just means that there wasn't one specific sin that would have caused blindness in his life as a baby. There wasn't any one specific sin that caused this to take place. But if we believe this, and then what do we do? We blame that on Adam. Because ultimately, it's the story of Adam that would cause sin to come into the world and that sin would bring corruption on all aspects of life. And so then you look at this and you say, Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall of Adam and what was Jesus professing to man that would take place. And then you have the curse of sin that would come upon mankind and upon the earth. Like who's to blame for this situation? Sin is to blame, but not any one specific sin or any one individual, but sin in general, the original sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. The Apostle Paul would write to the church and explain that through Adam's sin, sin entered the world. That sin is what brings death to everything, to all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul writes, All of creation, everything that we can see, is subject to the curse of sin. Now, here's what I want us to understand. Is it sin's fault? Yes, it's sin's fault. But if you really study out the curse in this way, we should see that the curse of sin was actually given for man's benefit in the day of Adam. See, because he was created in a way where he had all of his mind, all of the knowledge and wisdom, and had he just been able to go outside of the garden and continue to life, live life as is perfectly, Right, then he would have probably never seen a need for God in his life. But now God said, because of you ate of the apple and you were seeking a greater, you were seeking higher wisdom. You're seeking to know more, like I was holding back on you. Then I'm going to create this thing called sin in your life so that it will always show you that there is a need for me so that you won't leave me because we were created for relationship. And so the curse of sin is actually meant to draw us closer to God. 
and you can see throughout all of the Bible, anytime people are living lives that they think are perfect, they fall away from the Lord. And so God would have to cause something to take place to bring his people back to him, to return their hearts to him. This view is that God didn't necessarily cause it, but he allowed it because he allows free will of people and he allows sin on the earth until there will be a day where there is no more sin. In both of these views, God must be supremely valuable. God must be more valuable than your health, more valuable than even your life. And you have to understand that some things just won't make sense until God becomes that valuable to you. And then and only then will you see the sufferings of your life as something that have meaning. And you would view it as suffering is purposeful. Now, the third view here that I want to cover is really where I want to be. This is the idea that Jesus, when he said, neither the man or his parents sinned, but this is for the glory of God, is really not answering the question. What he's saying is, it doesn't even matter how the man became blind. But it's for God's glory. Neither the man nor his parents sinned, but this is for the works of God to be revealed in him. It's the view that Jesus, when it came to answering the disciples' question, didn't even really answer the question. But instead, what he tries to get them to see is he's pointing them to what will be done. Or more correctly, to his will be done. He's trying to say, listen, what is next? Instead of focusing on the theology of the problem, the theology of sickness, the theology of suffering in life, Jesus is saying, listen, this doesn't have to be about his sin or his parents' sin or anybody else's sin. This isn't about whose fault it is. This isn't about playing the blame game. Stop looking at the past. Stop looking at yesterday. Stop looking at even what took place this morning. Understand, this man woke up blind like every other day. He finished whatever his morning routine was that he probably had down packed to accomplish what he needed to accomplish before he even ever left his house. He went to work begging for the mercy of others. And in that morning even, he had no idea that life was going to be radically transformed right up to the very moment that Jesus stepped into his private space and saw him. Saw an opportunity to work the works of God. From the blind man's point of view, from what he could see, this really isn't about the value of suffering. This isn't even about you learning to value suffering. It was literally about grace. Understand that. I really want that to soak in. This blind man, he probably didn't even know the Lord. He didn't know Jesus. He was just living life to the best of his ability. 
This wasn't because he had great faith. It isn't because he was working the works or he didn't have it happen because he wasn't working the works enough or he wasn't good enough or he wasn't failing at something or because he wasn't able to go into the temple enough and go to church enough. It wasn't because he didn't believe enough. It wasn't any one of those things. It had nothing to do with his abilities. It had nothing to do with his parents' abilities. It had nothing to do with his friends' abilities. Literally, he had no clue about what would take place until he was doing his everyday routine and Jesus steps into his space and says, you know what? It's not about your past. It's not about your parents' past. It's not about your friends' past. It's not about who you grew up with. It's not about who you spent time with yesterday or the day before that or the things that you got mixed up in. This isn't about somebody else's sin. I see you. Maybe you had a bad morning. Maybe you didn't even know if you'd make it to where you are to even beg for the mercy of others this morning. But I see you. I see you for you right here, right now. For that man, all he could see in that moment was the grace of God on his life. Forget everything else. This is about God's grace. Now, from the point of the disciples, the lesson they're learning, they went from whose fault is it? We're going to try and play the blame game. Because that's what we all want to do is we want to blame everybody else for where we're at in life. To now understanding, here's a situation. Here's an opportunity. Here's where we are. Let's see what God does in this situation. Without judgment. With compassion. With love. Let's see how God brings change to me, to you, to the situation that we're all in right now. Jesus is trying to get them to focus on the now, to be present in the moment and see. And if you will do that, he will give you the sight to see, to be able to glorify him in whatever it is that he's calling you to do until he calls you to eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, the Apostle Paul would write these words to the church, going through challenges, sufferings, persecution. And what's he say to those who are getting beat up for their faith? Our present troubles are small. What? What? This goes against all psychology. Like, you're minimizing the problems in my life right now? Do you really know what I'm going through? Like, I'm experiencing heartbreak and hurt and sadness, and people are saying mean things to me, and I got fired because I believe, and, and there's people that want to beat me up out on the streets because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and there's people that want to put me on the cross like Jesus. Do you really know what kind of suffering I'm going through right now? 
Do you know that it's hard to even get something to eat for my family because I can't get a job because of what I believe? That it's hard to provide for my children? Like, do you really even understand? And Paul says, for our present troubles are small. That's right, man. Our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long. And yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them, the problems. And this glory will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles. We can see now. Wait. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Whatever you're seeing that's a problem in your life right now, the struggle in your life, like most people, this completely goes against what most people are taught. Like, what is going on? Where's the hurt? What's the situation? Who hurts you? Let's, let's, have, let's work through all of this stuff. Have you ever sat down and worked through all of that stuff and you feel worse when it's done? Like, oh, I thought I forgave them, but all that did... is make me mad, to put it nicely. Paul, don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze. You set your eyes on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. My final point is that we've got to learn to have foresight. This is what Jesus is trying to point out. We go from the ability to see, the challenge to not be just nearsighted or farsighted, but to have foresight. What does it mean to have foresight? It's the ability to know what needs to be done in the future, to fulfill the plan, to fulfill the purpose like, I got to be prepared for what might take place. I have foresight to know that this could happen. I'm planned and prepared for what this is. When I see that, what I see is that Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples, like, things are going to happen in your life. You have, the, have to have the ability to know that there will be opportunities that are presented to you to be able to fulfill the good plans that I have for your life to glorify me. In verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm going to be the light of the world. Like, it should interest us that right after explaining why we don't focus on the blame game, and right before actually healing the blind man, so in between the difficulty and the solution. The problem and the answer. The hurt and the healing. Jesus states the importance of working the works of, the, of God the Father while it is day. Because nobody's going to be able to work when night comes. As long as I'm here, I'm going to be the light. What's he saying? Most people believe that Jesus was expressing a sense of urgency. 
as his days were growing shorter, as he was looking forward to the night on the cross, and he was saying, as long as I'm in this world, I'm going to be the light. I'm going to glorify God. Jesus' answer to the why or to the who to blame is that we only have one life to live. One life to do what God has sent us to do. And our days are growing shorter. Nobody is promised tomorrow. And so we need the foresight to see God's goodness and God's grace displayed without judgment at every opportunity that is put in our path. And listen, Jesus didn't let anything stop him from doing just that. He didn't let anything keep him from attempting to work the works like he worked the works. I don't know if you remember the end of the previous chapter as we just entered into this chapter, but at the end of chapter 8, do you know what was going on in Jesus' life? Like, he just had a confrontation. Literally, he had went to the feast of tabernacles. Millions of people. He stood and he poured out the water and proclaimed that he is deity, the son of God. I am the water of life. There is living water. He steps down and there's people that begin to believe and there's people that begin to challenge him and question him. The Pharisees, they hated him for what he just said. He's going to lead people astray. He's going to cause people to believe the wrong thing. They begin to argue, fuss, and fight. Jesus explains himself to them, tries to explain, no, trust, this is who I am. But every time he tried to explain himself, he was even more misunderstood. Have you ever been there before? You're trying to explain. You're trying to bring clarity. It just seems to make the, the waters more muddy until it gets to a point that even some of the people began to turn against Jesus. They began to make fun of him. They began to mock him. That isn't what, why I stood up. That isn't what this is about. I want your hearts, not your hatred. So much so that somebody says, let's stone him. They want to kill him. And as the crowd is getting riled up to kill him in his innocence for trying to do something good, it says that Jesus disappeared in the crowd and he walked away. He walked away. But just because he walked away from the hatred doesn't mean that he walked away from the ministry. Just because he walked away from the hurt doesn't mean that he walks away from the healing. Just because he walked away doesn't mean he walked away from where he knows he should be. Because as we enter chapter 9, it says that as he passed by, 
They didn't have chapters in the Bible. They didn't even have punctuation. We don't even know if there was much time in between what took place, between the hatred and the healing. Was it moments? Was it hours? Was it a day? He was still there because when you get further into this chapter, you'll see where they were. They were back at the temple. He went right back to the temple. I don't know when this was, but can you imagine? He returns to the same place where he was just hated. He could have been hurt. He could have made up all sorts of excuses and reasons why he shouldn't do this, why he shouldn't go back, why he shouldn't continue in ministry. He could have come up with all these excuses about whose fault it is or played the blame game. But he walked right back into the same place he had just left. And it says that he saw. As long as I am going to be in this world, I am going to be the light. You want to talk about chaos? You want to talk about having a bad day? And so you don't want to do anything. You don't want to help people. Your heart's not right. You're suffering from people hurting you. I don't want to go minister to somebody. I can't deal with another thing. I don't want to be hurt even one more time. Are you blaming the hurt? Are you blaming the people? Are you blaming God? Are you saying that God doesn't have enough strength in you? You ever feel like things didn't turn out like you had hoped for? Jesus could have had all of those things after the day of the Feast of Tabernacles ended. All of those same reasons. And the next thing we see is as Jesus was passing by. And he still took the time to see. He still took the time to teach. So his disciples, who would then be in charge of spreading the good news throughout all of the world, could learn that it's not about whose fault it is. It's not about playing the blame game. It's not about judging what you can see nearest to the situation. He still took the time to minister to someone's need, to display God's goodness and grace. Charles Spurgeon said this, Jesus was often reviled but never ruffled. One of the things worthy to be noticed in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet of spirit, especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged and insulted and slandered him. He goes on and says, It is ours not to speculate, but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the tenor of the gospel, the good news, 
let us then be less inquisitive and more practical. Less for cracking doctrinal nuts and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes. We can't get so rattled with life that we can't minister to others. And the question is, do you really understand how much time you have left to serve the Lord? Carl Claflin isn't here today. And so I'll talk about him for just a minute. If anybody's friends with him on Facebook, you'll see that he posts quite frequently. He's had a battle with cancer for a few years now. It went away. It came back. When it came back, it was worse and spread to different places. At one time, he even believed that he was healed, and yet it still came back. And so there's a lot of reasons that he could be upset at, at people, at God, at whatever it might be in the situation. It took away his ability to work so he couldn't drive truck anymore. He had to get a bag on his side. He's now had a growth on his backside, so it's hard for him to even sit in a chair. And so if you're ever at church and you see the long, gray-haired guy that looks kind of like Santa Claus, he's often standing or he's pacing or sometimes he doesn't feel well and he needs to go home. And I read his posts sometimes. And I just see him continuing to give God praise. It was a few weeks ago, someone called me. They wanted to meet with me because they were really battling depression. They were having some tough things going on in their life. And so they said, can we get together and, and talk? And so I said, yes, we set up a meeting. That night, Carl had posted on Facebook. And I don't remember exactly what the post said, but it was essentially that he still trusts in the Lord and that God is good and, and cancers come back in certain parts and all these different things. And I sat there and I just pondered on what he wrote. Even to the end, fulfilling God's purpose. I don't know. It looks like his days could end sooner than mine, but I'm not promised that. And so I thought, you know what? I'm not going to be mean about it, but when I sit down with this person in the morning, I think I'm going to bring up Carl's post because this person goes to our church too, and they're not here today, and so they're getting talked about also. I walk in, and I was praying. I was thinking, I don't want this to come across as mean or dismissive. So I sit down at the table. We have small chat. Y'all know, like, how's the weather? You see this going on, whatever. Okay, let's get down to the heart of the matter. You know what? We don't really need to talk about any of the stuff I got going on in my life. Why is that? I was home last night, and I pulled up Facebook, and I saw Carl's post. And I got to be honest with you, Pastor. I don't have any problems compared to what he's going through in life right now. And to see his attitude puts me to shame. I'm fine. We continued to talk. To see 
the faith of somebody who's extremely challenged and has been for several years and things can seem to continue to get worse in his life and how it inspires other people in their faith to grow in their faith to to be able to see him as the example of working the works of God while it's still day while I'm still here I'm going to be the light he was in the hospital a couple of weeks ago and I went to see him that's where he spent Christmas and he had found out he had diabetes then he found out it was diabetes one whatever he's in there and uh, we visited it didn't really matter that he spent Christmas in there he was still happy and positive he told me stories about driving truck and then I left and a couple days later he had gotten home and he shoots me a text and he said you know there was one of my nurses he came in here and I started talking to him and I just had this sense that maybe he believed in God so I said you need to go to my church's YouTube page and start listening to the sermons and he said guess what it was later on in the day I heard him he was listening he was halfway through the sermon from Christmas and I thought you don't have to do that he had told me but I think he told me not to say anything that he had asked the Lord if it's my time I'm ready and I said Carl it's obviously not your time you want to know why you're still faithful that when you have the opportunity presented before you that you are still showing the goodness and the grace of God to people and what's going on in your life you're still being the light while it's day that's what God is calling us to in this season of time it doesn't matter what goes on in politics doesn't matter the craziness of all the conspiracy theories in the world it doesn't matter whose fault it is who's to blame what matters is this every day if we have eyes to see we're given opportunities to glorify will we work the works of God without judgment and yet with compassion while it's still day let's pray father we thank you for your goodness and your grace I'm so thankful to have a God that has grace for me it's not because of my sins or my faults my parents the people around me but that you still have beyond that a good purpose for my life a good plan for my life I don't know when it's gonna end but I know this that while I'm here you have a purpose and a plan and that I want to glorify you in that Lord I pray this morning that we would get our eyes away from the question or needing the reason and set our gaze upon you give us eyes to see to not be nearsighted or stuck in being farsighted but have the foresight to know what you have called us to do in this life in this day 
in this hour, in this moment, because ultimately you are good.